Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. If you're new to Crossroads, we are in a two-week series called, uh, sorry, a five-week series, week two, called Greater Love. And we're in John 13. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. A bit about today. Uh, we're catching up in the middle of this story of Jesus and his disciples eating a meal together. And, and we started last week with the first couple verses in John 13 and skipped around a bit as their conversation went back to the same topic throughout the next chapter as well. And what we looked at was what the nature of Jesus' love was for his disciples because they spent three years doing everything together to bring him to this point. They spent three years of every waking hour together learning and growing and loving and building these relationships and this intimacy. And this is the last meal they shared together. So in this meal, what Jesus does is he says, this is what love looks like. And the first thing we learned about what love looks like, if we're going to love like Jesus, is Love sometimes looks like change, because that's often not what I think about love. I think love holds on and doesn't let go, but Jesus says, I love you, and I'm about to leave. And he says that sometimes love holds on, and sometimes love lets go, and so he walks them through this story about how he has to go because it's better for them. And he says, I love you so much, but that means because I love you, I have to leave you. And we talked about the nature of love and how it does two things at the same time, that it soaks in the graces of the moments that God gives that we love, but at the same time, it doesn't sacrifice God's promises for our tomorrow where love grows and gets greater. And, and sometimes love holds on and sometimes love lets go. And Jesus is saying, I love you so much, and that means I'm going to have to let go. And that's really difficult. He actually uses a phrase uh, that I loved. It's kind of encapsulating the whole narrative here. It says in verse 1, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. And it says, to the very end, the word there in the Greek, to the very end is completed or it is finished. It's what he says on the cross when he was done um, giving himself for us. And what he means is that my love is so full and so rich and so deep that it literally has nowhere to grow. And that's a different kind of love than we have. Because no matter how much you love your kids or your wife or your daughter or your husband or your parents or your brother or your sister, no matter how much you love them, it has somewhere to go tomorrow. And I hope that it does. I hope the love that we have for those in our life, God included, grows. God's saying, I love you so much, it can't grow anymore. It's fully mature and complete, which is incredibly comforting as a follower of Jesus. It means it's not going anywhere. It means that even if my today is pretty poor, God loves me with the same amount, fully completed, mature tomorrow. It's a comforting phrase that he says, I've loved you to the, the most degree in which somebody can love and none of, nothing's going to change that. And that mantra kind of encapsulates everything he says from that point on out, saying this is what love looks like. And so he says, I've loved you to the very end, and it looks like me having to leave you. And today we get into a very familiar passage, if you've been around church world for a while. It starts in verse 4, and it ends in verse 17. And we talk about this thing that makes me very uncomfortable. We talk about feet. 
people, okay? I, I needed to know something heading into this message. I really, really dislike feet. I do. I just think they're worse than sweet tea. I think they're gross, and I don't like my own. I think closed-toed shoes are a grace of God, and I know what that means. It's already started happening. I'm going to get pictures of gross feet from you people in my inbox and in my text messages. Already happened. I went upstairs to check my phone between services. I yelled and threw my phone across my office, all right? I dislike saying the word feet so much that I thought about it. I joked with the staff. I taught middle school a while ago. And um, every time we would come up to like sixth graders, we'd come up to a topic that was just hard for them, like physicality, for example. Instead of saying the big S-E-X word, we'd just substitute it for something that didn't make them feel icky, like flowers, you know? So I thought about maybe every time we said the word feet today, we'd use like bottles, you know? Like Jesus washed the dirty bottles of the disciples, right? But... I thought that's not very loving. So I'm going to say the word a lot today, and I need you to know what it's costing me, okay? That's all. But we get into this conversation, and why I bring that up is because part of our tension today is how gross feet are. And I think they're gross now, but man, we're going to go into a little detail about how gross they were a couple thousand years ago in the first century, in case you didn't know. But before we do that, We're going to pray it out like we always do because we have two goals. One is to know God more, and we're never going to get to the end of that, and that is a good thing because it means God is bigger than me. And so we open the scriptures and trust that the Holy Spirit teaches us about who he is, that the Holy Spirit living in you as you engage with the presence of God in this room teaches you and leads you and changes you to look more like Jesus, more by the end of the service today than when you came in at the beginning because we're growing And that means that you're going to have to do some soul searching and you're going to have a job to do when we read through this text. And then two, we're going to experience God as we worship God today. So it's just this mind, will, and emotion coming together to completely meet God as we are formed, right? And so I'm going to ask that you pray for yourself, that you might grow today and be challenged by the Holy Spirit and and that you might interact with the presence of God in this place. Then I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I don't make the first row sick with my coughing and that I can talk about feet to not get grossed out all morning long, all right? So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for moments like this that we can gather together every week just to gather with friends old and new and, and, and open the scriptures and never find an end to you, to your character and to your goodness. Hopefully as we look at the scriptures today, our love continues to grow for your character and your goodness as we see it unfold in our lives. So I just ask that you take a minute or two, a couple seconds actually, and just pray to yourself and ask that the Spirit guide you and teach you and encourage you and instruct you today as we open his word. Then I ask that you pray for me, uh, that I make it through this morning, and uh, that what I say is used by the Spirit of God to grow us as a church body, to increase our understanding and our awareness and our need for service and how we love those around us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. See, you're already involved in this morning. If you've got a Bible, John 13, we're going to start, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 4. But before we get there, you've got to understand the culture and the context about this meal that's happening. 
So we jumped into the middle and kind of hit on it last week, but this is the culmination of Jesus in Jerusalem. He had just ridden in on a donkey and people laid down palm leaves and they said, Hosanna, come and save us. And they literally thought this guy, Jesus, was about to start a revolution that overturned the social and political hierarchy in the known world. They thought Jesus was about to do something militarily that made, that made the Jews in charge once again, just like their ancestor David did before him. They were excited. They were extremely excited. And that, that, that context carries into the conversation that we have today. So the disciples, then, as they come into this meal, and the whole city literally at this point is buzzing about Jesus, have some apprehensions about what's happening next. They have some idea about what's going to happen, and it was, in a sense, misplaced. And what they did was, they had this expectation that began to change the nature of the table that they were eating at. And it, it happens all the time, right? Whether you believe in it or not, an expectation or a vibe, if you will, if you take it into a meal or an experience, can change the way that you interact with those around you. So if you don't follow the Dallas Mavericks, it's okay, I do. And this week, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, as my family calls him, the German Moses, because he led us to the promised land. Dirk Nowitzki passed Wilt Chamberlain on the all-time scoring list. And I read an interview with a guy that went to the game that had no idea what was happening. And it happened really early on. And, and he said, I got to the game and, you know... Everybody had their phones out and they were videotaping and they wouldn't sit down from the very beginning. And I looked around and said, what is happening? And the guy said, you don't know what's going on. And he said, no. And he said, the guy looked at me and said, Dirk's about to pass Wilt Chamberlain. And he said, oh my gosh, I picked up my phone and I videoed the whole thing, right? Expectations are contagious. And the disciples' expectations coming into this meal was that Jesus was about to do something exceptional and that they were going to benefit. We have the same story in Luke 22, and Luke actually describes the tension at the table. He describes the expectation of the disciples, and it says this in verse 24. It says, a dispute also started among them over which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So they're at this table. They're feeding off of the people in the city that think Jesus is going to save them and topple Rome. And they start arguing over which one of them is going to be in charge of the most land in the city. They start arguing over how great they're going to be in relation to one another. They start arguing over how much power I'm going to have over your power. This is the moment we've been waiting for. We followed this guy for three years and half the time people thought he was crazy. Now is our time, right? So at the table, they sit there. And they start having a conversation about how great things are going to be when Jesus finally does what they think he's going to do. <laughs> it's interesting because I always think about Jesus in that moment. Because he didn't share their excitement because he was the only one that knew what happens next. He's the only one that knew what Gethsemane looked like. He's the only one that knew the cross was involved. He's the only one that knew he was going to die. And so you get this, from the beginning very large disconnect between the disciples' experience coming in and Jesus knowing what's going to happen next. And if we don't understand that, I don't think we get the gravity of this moment. So they're over here arguing about how great everything's going to be, and I can just see Jesus being quiet, sitting there thinking, we have no idea what's happening next, and we have very different experiences of this moment. It reminded me of about a year and change ago when we had a pastor's retreat, and we went to this house, and um, we go there for three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, come back. And, and Steve and I had talked for a couple months in advance, and you know, we, we knew that he was going to step down in leadership here, and I was going to take over. And I, I love our staff. One of the best things about our staff is we love each other. 
And while it was a good thing, it's still a hard thing. And so we go to this pastor's retreat like we do every year. And we had our first meal together and people are excited and sharing stories. And we're planning for the year ahead. And the whole time as we're planning for the next year ahead, Steve and I were the only ones at the table that realized that none of this was going to be the same tomorrow. We had a very different experience of that meal. And so you get this disconnect between Jesus and his disciples in this moment that everything's going to change tomorrow. And they didn't get it. And so they're talking about how great they're going to be, and Jesus doesn't. Instead, he does this. Look at verse 4. He got up from the meal. He removed his outer clothes. He took a towel and tied it around himself. He poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel he had wrapped around himself. So I want to press in here to get the gravity of the moment. So first of all, we've established this truth, feet are gross, right? We can all agree with that. I had a job in San Francisco um, a while ago in between undergrad and grad school, and I led a small team there. High school kids would come in from all over the country, about 100 a week, and we lived at this church, and we would partner with local nonprofits in the city, soup kitchens and food banks and Blue Cross Blue Shield, and we would just serve. And we taught a curriculum around the nature of service and the cyclical nature of poverty, and it was eye-opening for a bunch of high school kids that probably came from the Midwest or more affluent parts of the country. We showed them what it looks like to be poor and how to serve the least among us. And at the end of that, it was a value of the company that I worked for. Every week at the end of it, we'd have this large foot washing ceremony. And because I led the adult leaders, I washed the adult feet, okay? And let me tell you something. Adult feet, after a week of service in San Francisco, when you only shower every other day at the YMCA, they're not great, all right? It was my least favorite hour of the week. I hated it. I hated washing their feet. It was a beautiful moment, and most people wept at it, but I hated washing their feet because, as we've established, feet are gross. If you think feet are gross now, think a couple thousand years ago. Let me paint you a picture. A couple thousand years ago, they didn't have paved roads. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. Everybody walked everywhere. They walked in sandals. They walked on dirt. And you know who else walked on dirt? The animals you took with you that did what animals do on the dirt you walked on. So it was gross. Oftentimes, you'd have wet stuff and dry stuff on your feet. And so it was more than just something that they did to prove a point. It was a cultural, if you will, almost mandate that you wash feet because feet were so incredibly disgusting. The first thing you do when you walked into somebody's house was you would get your feet washed, especially before a meal. Meals looked different back then. They were longer and they were more intimate and there wasn't a table, no matter what picture you look at of the Last Supper right? At tables now, you can hide feet. They're under the table. I can't see them. Then you often lay down and recline. There's a bunch of pillows around. And so it would not be uncommon if your feet was next to somebody's face during a meal, right? And if that wasn't gross enough, if you didn't wash them, nobody ate some stuff. You absolutely washed your feet before you ate in the first century world. We actually see it from the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis, the first four times it even mentions feet, it always follows it with they were being washed. It's a cultural expectation of not just Jewish culture, but the first century world. And beyond that, it was Jewish law. So foot washing was kind of its own important embedded cultural expectation, so much so that it had a colloquial phrase in the first century. So if you were unprepared for something, it would be, they would say it's the equivalent of unwashed feet. So if you showed up to something unprepared, they'd liken that to having unwashed feet because you would never do that. It was insulting. And so in the first century, in the first century Jewish world, washed feet was a necessity for community life. 
It's such a big deal in the Jewish law that we're going to talk about in a second, but in Galatians, Peter almost splits up the church because of washings, people not wanting to wash before they ate. It's a huge deal because people were so incredibly gross. But then when you look at how it got done, the tension builds a little more. So Jewish people washed feet. They had their feet washed before they ate meals. But because washing feet was so gross, you never did it yourself or you never did it to somebody else around you. It was always the job of a slave, always. And not just a slave, the lowest slave you could find. There was a rabbinic phrase in the first century that said that you will get your feet washed, but every Jew, even if they're a slave, is not low enough to wash feet. So even if you're a Jewish slave, they thought you were better than foot washing. That's how low it was. D.A. Carson is a theologian, and he says, there is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It is in every single way the lowest form of subordination you can get. It's an act of subservience every single time. One that you didn't just do because it needed to be done. So we get to this meal. We get to this meal and you have 12 disciples, and you have Jesus, and at this point, nobody has their feet washed. And it was so important culturally. And we know it's a sign of subservience. We have examples in the scriptures. In Luke 7, there's a woman who, all she's described as is a sinner, and she shows up to a house where Jesus is eating, and she dumps perfume on Jesus' feet. It was really expensive stuff. If you read the story, it's, it's about a year's wages of perfume on his feet and wipes it up with her hair. And she's weeping the whole time because she knows that she needs Jesus, that she serves Jesus, that she needs what he gives, that she is in every single way subservient to everything that he is. And this is one of those rare situations where the physical lines up with the spiritual implications. The posture proves the point of what it is because there's no way that you can wash somebody's feet and not be looked down upon. None. Just the nature of what they're doing. Every time you get your foot washed, you're going to look down on the person doing it. It's a physical form that represents a spiritual truth that's greater. So you've got to understand that in this context, you have all these disciples talking about how great they are, about what part of the, li- the land they're going to get, about how people are finally going to recognize how good they are and that they were in this Jesus thing from the very beginning. You know, They invested early, and so their return will be great in the I follow Jesus game. And Nobody had their feet washed yet because everybody thought they were above it. Because you had a bunch of disciples that said, we're going to be great. We don't do that. And Jesus gets up, takes his towel, and starts washing. Jesus, who it says in the verse before, in verse 3, because he knew that the Father had handed all things over to him, and he was coming from God, and he was going back to God. Jesus, who it says in Philippians 2, that he, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus, who in every single way is the highest ranking person in any room he's in in the first century. Jesus, who was their rabbi and their master and their Lord. Jesus gets up and starts washing their feet. I need you to understand the absolute tension of that moment of the disciples looking at each other thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on? We're talking about how great we are and this guy's washing our feet. This is not done. There was a song by Michael Card and I liked some of the lyrics. It says, this is a pivotal moment in that Jesus finally gives up on his words. He has told them numerous parables about slaves. Now we will portray the most humiliating of slave roles. He'll wash their feet. 
Even after three long years of often bizarre and indescribable behavior, the disciples are befuddled by the inappropriate behavior that leaves them speechless. One commentator said, the disciples are ready to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. Jesus gets up and washes their feet. And I can only imagine in that moment, you could hear a pin drop because nobody knew how to respond. Because they're talking about their greatness and the person they follow is doing the lowest job that you could do in that culture. So he gets up and he starts washing their feet. And I love what it says next in our text. It goes straight to Peter in verse six. If you look ahead, it says, then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And, and what I love about this is, I wonder how many people he washed before he got to Peter. You think of that? I wonder how many times he went to one disciple after the other and started washing their feet and they didn't make eye contact because it was awkward. They kind of looked away because they didn't know what to say. And they just didn't acknowledge the elephant in the room of this moment. That's not Peter. I also love moments like this. I don't know if you can relate to him, but I love moments like this because you got to imagine when he gets up to do this, the tension and the awkwardness that filled the space is a teaching moment that doesn't end, you know? So it's this beautiful moment that after he was well, good, and gone, they probably reflected on this moment and it kept on teaching them about the depth of what service was. Because as they learned more about the highness of who Jesus was as he died and rose again and started appearing to him, they probably thought back to this moment and said, that's the guy that washed my feet? It's a teaching moment that keeps on teaching the more they grow in their understanding of God. It's a beautiful, awkward-filled teaching moment. It's kind of like when you become a parent for the first time. I have more appreciation for my parents now than I ever have in life because I finally understand what sacrifices they made for me. At 17, I thought they really just hindered my life, didn't help it, and didn't really give anything up. I really gave more to them with my winning personality and wit, you know? But then you get to be a parent and you realize, oh my goodness, how much sleep did they give up? My kid's not even taking all my money yet. That's for me to look forward to in the future. And so as I'm growing in my understanding and my own parenting, I'm realizing the depth of the sacrifice that my parents made for me. As we grow in our understanding of who God is, his sacrifice only becomes richer and deeper. Every day that we show up, every day that we wake up, every Sunday that we come here and open the scriptures, I'm hoping that the richness of God's sacrifice for us just grows. It's why we can have Easter service every year, and not just once, because you haven't got to the end of it yet. And the disciples probably reflected on this moment as they realized more and more who Jesus actually was, as they grew in their understanding of him and said, that's the guy that washed my feet. So he gets to Peter, and he looks at Peter, and Peter says, and I love it in verse 6, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand after these things. Peter said to him in verse 8, you will never wash my feet. <laughs> Here's what I love about Peter. I think two things. One, what we see in Peter is, I think, a reflection of how we deal with grace in our life. Because he's got two different responses, and I want to break them down. And the first one is Jesus comes to him, he saddles up next to him with his towel in the wash basin, and he looks up at Peter, and Peter says, what are you doing, Jesus? And he probably looks at him and says, the same thing I've done to four or five other people. And Peter says, you will not wash my feet, right? 
In the Greek there, there's so many negatives that what it connotates is with the biggest and most um, kind of fortified tone Peter could use, he rejected what Jesus was doing because it was so upside down that the master would serve the slave, that the rabbi would wash the feet of his disciples. Peter's saying with all the force in the world, this is not going to happen. I talked about it a few months ago, but growing and learning in this parenting thing, I've realized that one thing that my kid hates more than any other thing is the bulb snot sucker. And this week I have had the privilege of using it, right? My wife this week has upgraded to, because things got bad at two in the morning, my wife upgraded to the nose Frida. If you don't know what that is, Google image it and don't sleep again. Anyway, so I'm still a bulb sucker guy because I can't get over it and my love for my kid hasn't grown there yet. And so I, this week, trying to help my kids sleep and really help all of us sleep at some point. We get the bulb sucker out and, and we've done this a couple different times. And I, I cannot tell you, there is nothing she hates more than this bulb sucker. We will put her down, she'll be fine, we'll bring this thing out and, and if her head could pop off her body, it would with how much she is throwing her neck around, right? And so she is like just vehemently denying our help in this moment. And I'm holding her head down. And the difference now between now and two months ago is she's gotten stronger and I feel pressure. <laughs> you know, I feel like a worse parent. But we hold her down and she's doing everything she can to say, this moment will not happen. Peter's doing the same thing to Jesus. He's saying this moment will not happen. I will not let you serve me this way. And that's interesting because I think that's sometimes how we respond to grace. Because grace is hard. You know, the concept of grace seems easy. You just get stuff you don't deserve. But when you break it down, the idea that I receive something I don't deserve has to in some way implicate the fact that I didn't deserve it or didn't merit it. And I don't like admitting that I didn't deserve it or didn't merit things. I don't think we're great at receiving without contributing, you know? And if we contribute towards something, then we dilute the grace of the something that we're given. It's interesting. So... Steve's wife, Darlene, I don't know if you get to be in a small group with her ever, if you have the privilege of, I didn't because she only did it with women, but I've heard the stories. And we've talked about it quite a bit on staff because supposedly she was phenomenal at, at hosting. Like this was her gift. And every week you'd meet at her house and she'd make a meal. Um, she'd make it for her small group, but it also fed, fed most of Bridalwood. And she would set this table and you'd walk in the door and she would look at you and say, you're going to sit here tonight and be served. And I don't know about you, I, I have a hard time watching people work and not contributing. And, and so she would make you sit there at this table and she would cook for you and she would serve you and then she'd take the plate from you and go wash it and she wouldn't let you lift a finger. And that makes me really uncomfortable because it's just pure unadulterated grace that I have to sit there and admit that I had nothing to deserve. And if you try to do anything, she'd look at you, and I've heard her say this phrase before, she'd look at you and she'd say, if you can't accept and receive this grace, how can you accept and receive what Jesus did for you? It's this beautiful picture that grace, unadulterated grace, if you fully understand it, makes me uncomfortable because it forces me to deal with the idea that I didn't bring anything to the table, and that makes me feel, for a lack of a better word, icky. It makes me realize that I have nothing to contribute. It checks my pride at the front door. So Peter, because all those things are happening at the same time, Peter says, you will never, ever, 
ever wash my feet? And Jesus responds, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying, if you don't understand that the nature of what I came is to be received, if you don't receive well, if you don't understand grace well, then you will not flourish in my kingdom because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Fully understanding that Jesus loved him to the end and that looked like him not contributing towards it. It's the beautiful, unadulterated grace of Jesus. So the first thing Peter does is say, I'm not going to accept it because this is not right. And he said, yeah, that's what grace is. Thank you. Not fairness, okay? (laughs) Sit there and soak that in. And as you soak in the not fairness of grace, may that change your perspective. We don't teach behavior modification. We teach Jesus changes our hearts and lives because we understand his goodness, sacrifice, truth, beauty, love, and grace. And so then Peter moves on to his second objection after Jesus squashes that one, right? So Peter says, if you follow with me in the next verse, he says in verse nine, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. (laughs) I love this one because I think we do this all the time. So he's going to accept grace, but he's going to say, you're going to wash my feet, but let me make your grace better, (laughs) you know? Let me add to it because you're just washing feet, but I got a lot of other exposed skin here that I could use to scrub down, you know? And so what we do is we take the grace of Jesus and we say, I can make this fuller, richer, more complete. I can make it to where it's a little bit better and, and, it's, and it's what you intended, I'm sure of it, but I'm gonna complete what you began. And here's the deal. It's hard sometimes to admit that all God gave was complete. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and she has a friend that used to be um, Catholic. And since then, she's transitioned out of that church into the evangelical church. I don't know if she goes to a Bible church or a Baptist church. Are there any other kinds in Texas? And so she, um, she, she was having a conversation with her, and, and, and this former Catholic said, uh, yeah, I still say the Hail Mary. And my friend said, you don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Like, we pray to Jesus. It's, it's good. It's good, you know? And she said, yeah, but... But what, really, what can it hurt, right? It's not, it's not going to do any harm, okay? I can just add this on. It'll just cover my basis just in case all that Jesus gave didn't fully cover. Like, this is something else to add on to our version of Christianity to make it fuller, richer, more complete. We do it all the time with morality in the church today or social or political issues. And not to say that those things aren't good or virtuous or worth fighting for, but they're not the same thing. Uh, growing up in the 90s as a teenager, late 90s, early 2000s, there was a big movement that now people are kicking back against a little bit. It was um, by Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that whole idea. And what they did was they literally likened virginity, which is a good thing before marriage, to Christianity. It's like they went part 1A and 1B. This idea that we're going to add a little bit to it and really round out what God has for you. And while those things are worth talking about and pursuing, they're on a different level than the grace that Jesus gives. And what Peter's doing, he's saying, fine, then don't just wash my feet. Let me make it better. Wash all of me because there's more to do. He does this, like I said before, in the Galatian church. In Galatians 1, you can read about it. Paul goes there and he's saying, you have to wash before you eat a meal. This is what God intended. You're not fully who you are in Jesus until you wash. It makes him love you and like you more because this is what he meant. And Paul says, if you believe that about Jesus' sacrifice, that's a whole nother gospel because the truth of adding things to the grace of God is when we do that every single time, we dilute the thing that we're adding to. You're saying Jesus isn't enough. Every time. 
Every time we add to something, we dilute something. And so what Paul is saying in Galatians 1 and what Jesus is saying here is your feet are enough. What I give is enough. My grace fully covers. There's no part of you, no crevice, no sin stain that I can't get out. Trust the fact that my grace is enough. And sometimes that's difficult because we raise our hand and walk forward and accept Jesus four and five times because we don't think it's stuck. Because we don't think we were serious enough because we sinned yesterday. <laughs> Jesus is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. The question is, do we fully believe that? Peter's saying, I can add on, I can improve, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to stick with your feet. Because in the first century world, feet symbolized the entire person. Right? There's a verse in Romans that talks about it. It says, Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What the writer Paul isn't saying the people that bring good news have really great feet. Like, you should... You get pedicures from their guy. No, 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 no. It's saying that the entire person that lives into and lives out the gospel of Jesus everywhere he goes is what they're created to be. Beautiful, good, whole, complete. You know, we, we, we do the same thing all the time. We let hands and feet be metonymous for the whole person, right? So if you kill somebody, please don't do that. If you kill somebody, you say blood is on my hands, even if you shot them, right? Even if you didn't do it by stabbing them. This idea that the hands and feet, the things that brought you to and completed the action stand for the whole person. Jesus is watching, washing Peter's feet because it symbolizes what he's about to do on the cross and Peter doesn't get it. So Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now. And then he further clarifies, look at verse 10. He says, Jesus replies, the one who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. It's a tricky sentence, um, Essentially, what he's doing is he's shifting the conversation from that one moment, and he's trying to give them a glimpse into what he's going to do big picture. He's giving them a glimpse into what this stands for, because they don't see it. So he says, in this text, the one who's been bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Two different words there, bathe and wash. That idea of bathing is a full body immersion in the Greek. And so he said, if you've been fully immersed in fully washed head to toe, you don't have to do it again. This is justification versus sanctification. This is God saying, I forgive your sins once. I don't need to do it seven times because the first time was enough. In the Jewish world, especially in the first century, and especially in the Levitical covenant with Moses, he outlined several reasons why they had to wash ceremonially to paint the picture of being clean before God. If you're consecrated as a priest, if you touched a dead body, if you touched a dead animal, if you just gave birth, if you had some kind of skin disease... You go to a, something called the mikvah. It's a Jewish washing basin, and you dip your whole body in and come out clean every time before you went to temple as a priest. You'd take a bath. In the Old Testament, if you were a scribe, if you wrote down the scriptures, every time you came to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, every time before you wrote that name, you would take a bath because you couldn't write the name of God without being clean and pure. And so when he's saying that the only one, the one who has bathed needs only, he's saying that the one who's been fully washed by me doesn't need to do it again. He's saying they don't need to be fully bathed again, but they do need to wash their feet. And what he means is my justification happens once, but we live and walk in a dirty world and that rubs off on you. And so every once in a while, you're going to have to check your motives, standards, and mode of operations against mine in my kingdom. And this is one of those moments for the disciples when they lived and walked with Jesus for three years and they still defaulted to the good of the world 
meaning not God's ideal for us instead of the good of Jesus. And we see it. If you go back to the Luke passage, he says, they're arguing over which one is the greatest. And Jesus steps into that conversation and he says in Luke 22, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. The leader is like the one who serves. And Jesus says, this is a moment where you need to have your reality checked. This is a washing. It's what we do when we confess. It's what we do when we repent. It's what we do when we go before God and say, where am I not living into your design for my life? It's what we do in community. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. But don't let the sin present in our life that needs to be checked against the righteousness of God convince us that the righteousness of God wasn't enough. So Jesus says, when I wash you clean at this thing that I'm about to do on the cross, it's good enough. But every once in a while, you're gonna have to be reminded of my good because you walk and live in a dirty world that oftentimes goes against my standard of good. Love and power being one of them. So this moment and Jesus is talking to his disciples and it's really awkward and Again, nobody says anything but Peter, and whether Peter is at the beginning, the middle, or the end, there's still 11 more, and so Jesus keeps on going down the line. And again, I'm sure it's awkward and tense. And then it ends, look at verse 12 with me. It says, so when Jesus had washed their feet and put his outer clothing back on, he took his place at the table again and said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You get this picture, this is kind of the release valve of the awkwardness and the tension in the meal. Like when Jesus put his outer clothes back on, his coat back on, they're like, this is what we recognize, thank God. This is our safe space again. You are seated at the table. This is where I'm okay. I'm in my safe zone. Nothing's challenging me. Thank goodness we're back to recognize territory. And so Jesus sits back down at the table and I love what he does. He processes with his people because after moments of tension where we're challenged by God, if we don't process through him, we don't grow. And so he says, do you guys have any idea what just happened? I think those are so important, those moments when we process. So often it's easy just to drive right by them or not to take the time or just to move on or just to get to the food. But Jesus stops down in his last meal with his disciples and says, it's so important, we're going to process right here and right now. I think through all the mission trips I've been on, all the times I've been to Mexico, all the times that students came back from Mexico and said to me, one-on-one, -on -one, I built a house for seven people. I got back home and my bedroom's bigger than their house. I think about those moments as moments where we're supposed to process with them how God is changing them. That's what Jesus did. That's our job as mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. That's our job as friends and family is to help our friends and family realize, recognize and then change from the moments God gives us that are awkward and tense because they teach us. I love that Jesus does it because it's a reminder to me to stop down and do it too. And in a world that's so increasingly fast, it becomes harder and harder to have moments to stop down and to process and ask hard questions about what God is doing and what it means. So Jesus with his disciples says, this is what I came to do. He comes back to the idea that we're talking about greatness. I just showed you what it was. Do you get that? Do you get that this is what great is? And then he defines it for him. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord and do so correctly. For that is what I am. If then I'm your teacher and your Lord and I've washed your feet, you too ought to wash one another's feet. For as I have done to you, you should do it to others. I tell you the solemn truth. The slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent as a messenger greater than the one who has sent him, what he's saying is essentially that I did this to show you this is your job. 
and that you're not better than me. And if you don't do it, you're saying you are. I was talking to one of our elders this week, and he's retired, but he um, worked at a big, big, big company, uh, Kimberly Clark, and, and he was, I think, decently high up there. And so he would get to ride on the company's private jet, um, you know, a good bit with the CEO. And it was the CEO's private plane. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of jet that got him from point A to point B in a place where he didn't have to go through security. So it was beautiful. And he said it was great. Every time you got on that plane, which was the CEO's plane, so he decided when it started, where it started, where it landed. He said, let's go. It's his plane. He said every time you got on that plane, he had one rule. He said, I serve you drinks and I make you breakfast. Every time, right? A couple takeaways. One, if you guys want to buy CBC a plane, I will make you breakfast, Okay. I just need you to know that. You can give them the back of your head a little bit. I know some pastors with planes. I make a heck of an omelet, everybody. I just want you to keep that back there somewhere, all right? Uh, two, is, is, as he was talking about it, and again, he's retired, he said it painted such a picture of what the company was about, that it wasn't about one guy, it wasn't about one man, it wasn't about one job, but it was about all of us, but what we did together. Uh, I love that basically what Jesus is saying is that you're going to fight this battle to make <laughs> the kingdom about you all the time. You're going to fight this idea to make the gospel about you all the time. And you know the solution to a selfish gospel is a serving gospel every time. And so if you want to fight a selfish culture that says it's all about you, serve more. When we serve, we show people a bigger gospel that's bigger than me and bigger than you. It says God is up to something in our world. Augustine's a church father, and he says it like this. He said, nor should the Christian think it beneath him to do what was done by Christ. For when the body is bent at a brother's feet, the feeling of such humility is either awakened in the heart itself or strengthened if already present. He's saying, whether you're humble or not, you serve and you'll get there. It'll either grow the humility you have or it'll jumpstart it where you don't have it yet. So (laughs) this isn't one of those moments where he's saying, develop humility and then serve. He's saying that's what develops the humility in the first place. So if you're saying, I'm just not humble yet, Start serving. You'll get there pretty quickly. Uh, I shared this story before. It's just really good. I, you don't know, I took a year off um, in between grad school and this job um, to do what all people love to do that are 22, 23. It's a long-haul trucker. And as I was driving across the country, I one time came on a job that led me to Tucson. My brother lived in Tucson. And growing up, we, we, were, we were high school kids. We had a lot of jobs doing different things, you know? We refed at games at the YMCA actually over here. I worked at a Dairy Queen. Well, I tried to work in the drive-thru. I'm deaf in my left ear and it only fit the left side. I thought if I willed it hard enough, I could hear people. Didn't work. Uh, so as we did different odds and end jobs that were, you know, more blue collar, my brother graduated from college, got a degree in finance, got a, a big boy job as we called it in Arizona, in Tucson. And I was driving trucks. Nothing wrong with that. Love it. And so... I stopped through Tucson and took a couple days and hung out with him. And it was a Saturday. And I said, I got a a drop to make a delivery at a house. And he said, okay. So I got up early on a Saturday morning and he said, hey, I'm going to come with you. And I said, nah, I don't know if you have to. He said, we used to work at warehouses together through college. And he said, yeah, I'm going to come with you. I said, okay, if you want to. And so all day long, he came with me. It was probably four or five hours and we made drop after drop after drop. And at the end of the day, again, it was a Saturday. I, I said, hey man, you really didn't have to do that. I don't know why. I don't know why you did this. I could have handled it. And he said, no, I did. He said, because you were talking about it last night and a part of me thought that I was better than this and I needed to do it to to show myself that I wasn't. It's this idea that when we serve, we remind ourselves that we're not better than the people we're serving because Jesus said, if I served, 
If I served, then you serve. And every time, whether you mean it or not, if you don't serve others, you're saying that they are subservient to you. Whether you mean it or not, when you don't serve, you're saying you're better than them. And if Jesus served them, you're saying you're better than him. And so why, why do we serve? Because we're not better than Jesus. Because it takes a gospel that we want to make about us and makes it about something much, much bigger. Because it paints the picture of a God who served in the first place. Because ultimately, what happens when we do it is we find that we were created to serve one another. And that's where he ends it in verse 17. He says, in verse 17, you understand these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. And we don't have time to get into it because we're running a little late. But uh, you can research it. I can send you some stuff. But I love kind of if you follow leadership blogs or leadership journals or like Harvard Business Review or London School of Business or Forbes, I can send you some things. They talk about how leadership has progressed over the last two decades. And I wasn't really, I didn't remember most of the 80s, but the 80s was a big top-down leadership model. Like, I'm the alpha dog. I will tell people when and where to be, and they will respond and follow. And what we see now is more leadership places are talking about the value of serving over telling, the value of serving those that you work with and work for you over telling them that you work with and they work for you. It's the idea that they're saying there's a better model of leadership. And why I love reading about that stuff and why all these journals are writing about it is because... That's how the world was designed to work in the first place. And they say, what you have when you serve the people that you work with, that work for you, what you have is a healthier culture that'll live, ride, or die with one another, you know? What, what, what this is saying, God's saying, this is how I designed the world to work, people to serve one another. This is when life is at its most full. What we see now that they didn't see then, what we see now is culture finally catching up to Christ. And I love it. I'm gonna press into those. I'm going to take those moments and say, hey, you know who's been saying to serve in forms of leadership for 2,000 years? Jesus, <laughs> you know? He said, from the beginning, this is what real love looks like, even though sometimes we forget. And so he's defining what love is. And what he's saying is a serving love is a greater love because it points us towards the greatest love, Jesus. That's our role as Christians. That's our hope and that's our prayer is that as we live in a way that serves one another, the story doesn't stop with just serving one another. It doesn't stop with just you're valued and I'm valued. It doesn't stop with just this is a way to make our team stronger at work. It doesn't stop with those things, but keeps pointing us to the greatest love, which is that of Jesus. And so we're going to take communion. Um, and one of the ways that we serve you guys is it's all gluten-free. And as we take communion, it's a simple reminder that Jesus served. As we take communion, among other things, my hope and prayer is that it, in, it incites a desire to serve others in us because we're reminded how much Jesus serves us. As we eat the bread and dip it in the grape juice, I pray that it reminds us that love is deeper than just me, that greater love serves one another because it points us to the greatest good and it's how life is meant to be lived. So let's pray and let's take some communion together. God, I'm so thankful that you define what love is and it's not left up to me. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for just the charge to serve. I forget and I don't want to a lot. I don't want to serve people that I think somewhere deep down I don't admit that I'm better than. I'm thankful for your example and you wash some feet and it reminds me of who I am in you, that your love never ends, that your love is full and complete, and that if I serve others, I can point them to a greater love than I can give them. As we take communion, I pray we're reminded of that. We take comfort in that. And in us, it encourages us. It's a catalyst for us 
to serve others because it's a better version of what love looks like. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus who serves. Amen.